This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we bring you Dr. Derek J. Robinson, Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois. Under his clinical leadership and strategic oversight to ensure effective and efficient delivery of quality medical care, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois has been able to move the needle on health equity and value-based care for over 8.5 million health plan members. It was a great interview, Daniel. And what were some of the things that you thought were some of the highlights for our our discussion today? Yeah, great question, Eric. I mean, it was a brilliant conversation. Dr. Robinson is very thoughtful. And we had a great discussion about disparities, diversity, education, uh, equitable vaccine distribution, all such critical topics right now and a really great perspective. I loved hearing about some of the programs that BCBSIL has implemented to address disparities and and bring about better equity for patients and really improving outcomes in health. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Derek Robinson as he joins us in the race to value. Dr. Derek Robinson, welcome to the race to value. It's so great to have you today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Well, Dr. Robinson, I thought a great way to start our conversation today would be to talk about your why. This personal why provides meaning and is our primary inner purpose in life. It defines who we are, the state of our consciousness, our presence in this world. And as a physician executive, your outer purpose is leading care management operations, providing clinical leadership and strategic oversight, providing high value health care to over 8 million members. However, what I find even more impressive about you as a leader is that you're driven by this inner purpose to alleviate suffering for those in the poorest of communities, recognizing that healthcare can only truly be transformative in providing superior health outcomes if it advances health equity. And over the years, you have used your voice to advocate for underserved communities in the belief that equitable attainment to health is really a human right. And this resonates with me personally because I believe health value is so much more than an economic imperative. It's a moral one as well. So Dr. Robinson, I'd love to learn more about your personal why. Can you walk us through your journey in value-based care from when you were practicing emergency medicine to your work now in clinical leadership and strategy at the health plan level? As a physician executive, what is your inner purpose that drives you as a leader? Thanks so much for the question. And I have to tell you, it's humbling to listen to the reflection, the observation that you shared. My career in medicine was really sparked by an interest in helping others and was really inspired by some of the observations I had of uh, family members who were ill over the course of my childhood and probably, I think, most significantly impacted by an uncle of mine who uh, was affected by a rare stomach cancer and had an untimely death uh, at age 41. And I think it's during that time period that I really began to shift my focus on 
aspiring to become a physician. And at the time my paternal grandfather passed away, I was pretty set that this was something that I wanted to pursue. And through the course of my you know, educational uh, training, both as an undergraduate and as a, a medical student, I began to gravitate towards uh, emergency medicine as the area of specialty that I wanted to spend my time in. And you know, of course, it's an incredible privilege to care for patients. Patients put a great amount of trust in their physicians. And certainly in an emergency medicine setting, often the patients that we impact are patients that don't have a prior relationship with us. And so that genuine desire to help others and to see them uh, overcome their illnesses was something I think was married well with an ability to, to quickly gain trust and to leverage my expertise in that particular setting. But one of the other privileges of emergency medicine is you get a chance to see both many of the bright spots and also many of the challenges that we have in our, our current healthcare delivery system, as well as the many factors outside of healthcare that influence the health of individuals and communities and, and subpopulations. And so as my career progressed through residency training and through business school, I really sought opportunities to not only have impact at the bedside, patient by patient, family member by family member, but the opportunity to have impact at scale. And many of the challenges that impact the health of communities across our nation really require large scale changes and whether those changes are at a public policy level, whether it's impacting various social determinants of health or changes in how we actually deliver care and pay for care and, and manage quality. There are you know, a number of different opportunities to see that positive change happen to the benefit of our patients and their families. And so that's really been at the heart of the work that I've had the privilege of, of leading, both in my roles working with the federal government, uh, with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, leading uh, some of their efforts at modernizing the use of electronic health records and value-based payments, to my work with the Illinois Hospital Association, leading patient safety and quality, working across the state, and then you know, the current opportunities that I've been fortunate to lead at Healthcare Service Corporation and across Blue Shield of Illinois in the areas of quality and accreditation and care management and supporting our value-based care programs. So that's a little bit about my purpose and my why, and appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Dr. Robinson, thank you for sharing that. It's really meaningful to hear your purpose and, and what drives you. Eric referenced that with 8.1 million members, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois is the largest health insurance company in Illinois. And there are significant health equity challenges in some of the communities you serve, especially in the Chicago area. Between 2012 and 2017, life expectancy actually fell for everyone except for non-Hispanic white Chicagoans. And Hispanic Chicagoans experienced an unparalleled decrease of more than three years, from 83 years to 80 years. And the impact of institutional racism on population health is readily observed in the nine-year gap in life expectancy between non-Hispanic Black Chicagoans and their non-Hispanic white counterparts. This translates to more than 3,500 excess deaths for Black people in Chicago every year, with more than half of the burden catalyzed by premature mortality from chronic disease. Chicago is one of the few large cities across the U.S. with a widening gap in all-cause mortality between Black and white residents across the last 10 years. If these grim statistics weren't enough, a substantial amount of data is showing how COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted communities of color. I'd appreciate it if you could elaborate more on the dire situation of racial disparities of care in Chicago. And then what are some of the current systemic challenges throughout the city and the state overall in addressing population health and health equity? Thanks for the question. Just listening to those statistics are sobering. And certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has put a huge spotlight on those disparities, particularly those by, by race and ethnicity that we see in Chicago, across the state and, and nationally as well. And we know even that looking at the first six months of last year, our nation lost a year of life expectancy and African-American men like me lost three years of life expectancy in just the first six months of last year. So that adds to the sobering statistics. The challenges that we see in the health disparities are not new. They haven't occurred overnight. They are broad, and I think they are rooted in many aspects of our society. And I think if we begin to look at the various social determinants of health, the evidence of the 
many of the root causes of, of those disparities are there for us to, to look at housing policies for the you know, 20th century. You will see that you know, racial segregation was a thriving and legal policy, both at the local, state, and national levels. I've heard some individuals state that segregation in housing was perhaps one of the most successful public policies of the 20th century, not because it was the right thing to do. We know that that was wrong and and unethical. But even despite changes in our law since those policies were put in place, we still see the the stain of that racial segregation uh, in housing persist. In Chicago, one of the hyper-racially segregated cities in the United States, and we do see huge life expectancy disparities in different geographies across our city. And as you all are probably aware, we have the misfortune of having the largest life expectancy gap between neighborhoods of any city in the United States, uh, 30 years of life expectancy gap. Uh, between areas and the Streeterville area and areas of the south side of the city. And because race and place are, are synonymous, that also is very emblematic of the racial disparity that we see in life expectancy and many other factors such as infant mortality, uh, maternal morbidity and mortality, elevated lead and the blood of children and, and a number of other, other factors. I think the reason why that housing piece is so important and germane to the discussion Undoubtedly, you've heard the term that your uh, zip code is more important than your genetic code. Where you live determines a number of different factors. The quality of the education that you receive based upon investments in the educational system and those schools that are located there is a determinant of the quality of the air that you breathe. We know that there are differences in air quality in different parts of our city. And because our city is racially segregated, you see differential exposure to Uh, air pollution, which can have a detrimental effect on the health uh, of individuals. It also impacts, you know, the investments within a community. So where do we see, you know, retail and grocery stores and access to to healthy foods, investments in the built infrastructure uh, in terms of, you know, playgrounds, public places to exercise and access uh, and safety. And then also, you know, where jobs are located, where businesses determine that they want to build office spaces or production facilities, those things also lead to other economic development within the communities. And so when we see disparate distribution of those resources, uh, it has that spillover effect into many of these other social determinants. And so where you have areas where, you know, the housing stock is inferior, old, dated, concentrated uh, living in a pandemic, you certainly see heightened exposure to COVID-19, for example, if you have multiple generations living in a, in a house where you have individuals and, and communities that have lower access to personal transportation, you have higher usage of public transportation. So people who are on buses and trains getting to their frontline jobs that are not in their communities, again, leading to that heightened exposure that we see uh, in the pandemic. And then when you don't have healthy foods in the area, places to exercise, you see spikes in obesity. And so, you know, many of the, the endemic chronic medical conditions that we see in our black and brown communities, coupled with some of the environmental exposures, whether it's air, lead and paint, or contaminated soil, you know, these other things contribute to adding to that morbidity load or increased illness uh, that we see in many of these populations that contribute to the challenges reflected in life expectancy. And then as we get into the healthcare delivery system as well, uh, we know that there are a number of you know, landmark reports and more recent reports that reflect that, you know, there are racial and ethnic disparities and inequities in how care is, is delivered. In other words, uh, it's it's hard to distinguish our healthcare system as being uniquely different from many of the other institutions of our society where we see disparities play out by race and ethnicity, gender and, and other factors. So all these things sort of layer on top of each other to reflect the outcome that you all talked about in your introductory comments regarding the disparities in in health status. They're complex, they're intertwined. They certainly will require some focused and intentional work, honest and in-depth conversations, an effort that is sustained over time and durable and not something that is, you know, an area of focus for a period of time, but not part of the core work that we do going forward. And so therein lies the opportunity for focus, both at the uh, local and state government level, opportunities for focus from corporate neighbors and philanthropic partners, and opportunities for focus by uh, the healthcare community as well. 
Well, Dr. Robinson, thank you for providing such an extensive overview of some of these current challenges that we're facing in, in these communities. Indeed, there is an exceptional opportunity to do better. And as we look at this problem of African-Americans and other demographic groups suffering in disproportionate numbers from various health conditions, such as heart and lung disease, diabetes, immune deficiencies, and obesity, it, it really seems that healthcare is just one factor to consider. I mean, gestalt of population health is really determined by those social determinants that you referenced, that premise that 80 to 90% of a person's health is ultimately determined by social factors and environment. It's such a profound and challenging reality for us to consider. And, you know, to the point you made earlier about the zip code in which you live is more impact on your health than actually having and, and oftentimes access to healthcare services is, is something truly remarkable. And I think about the implications that has on health equity, and, and it's huge. I mean, since African-American, Hispanic, and Native American communities have long experienced wide gaps in household income and household wealth, and there was so much to address in the SDOH space. I mean, access to quality education, employment, housing, transportation, having access to nutritious foods. I mean, all of that influences, to the point you made earlier, the well-being of a community more than the delivery of healthcare itself. And as a health plan, I'm encouraged that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois has really taken a lead role in supporting initiatives to improve housing, transportation, and availability of healthy food in disadvantaged communities. Can you tell us about some of these specific initiatives that BCBSIL is working on to address health equity and social determinants of health? Sure, I'd be happy to. And again, while we're proud of the work that we're doing, we also appreciate that it's not work that we're able to do alone. And certainly there are other partners that are engaged in this work. We appreciate that and we need to, to bring others to the table. I'll just start by, again, just noting that our mission really is to help improve the health and wellness of our members and the communities that we serve. And we know this is impacted, again, by many of the factors that I discussed earlier. You know, one of the latest things that we've engaged in is establishing our Blue Door Neighborhood Centers, which um, are a new location that uh, we've established in uh, three communities across Chicago, in Chicago's Pullman community, Morgan Park community, and the South Lawndale community. Um, and the idea there is to really have a hub for health and wellness that is nestled right there in a community where individuals live and where they need it. These centers are not focused on just Blue Cross Blue Shield members, but all individuals that live in the community. And so certainly during the pandemic, we've had to shift to having uh, more virtual programming. But, you know, previously we had on-site classes, physical, mental health, social well-being programs, exercise classes for yoga, diabetes workshops, you know, other things that would really bring folks together focused around health. Um, and we look forward to continuing to grow those programs uh, as we hopefully move through this pandemic and are able to get it get it behind us and have more in term uh, in-person programming. We've also done some unique partnerships with organizations like the American Heart Association. We've invested significantly in our social impact fund, which has helped support businesses on the south and west sides of the city of Chicago that are small businesses, but are focused on services that improve the health of the communities. And some of those have been food service companies, for example, that deliver fresh fruit and vegetables to individuals' homes. That program has also supported individuals who are formerly incarcerated that are preparing foods for for institutional uh, locations uh, throughout the city as well. So we're really happy to be engaged in that. We've also supported the city's new flexible housing pool to help provide housing stability for individuals that are living with chronic medical conditions as well as mental health conditions to help them have a stable place to live and to also provide wraparound services to support their social needs and ensure they're able to get back on their feet and, and get a job and maintain stable employment and more importantly, improve their health outcomes so they have a, a high quality of life. And so we've been really excited to be engaged in that work. And then certainly during the pandemic, we have invested heavily in supporting some of the immediate needs that have emerged out of the pandemic as many individuals have lost jobs, in some instances, lost access to healthcare. And so in April of 2020, we invested one and a half million dollars in supporting community organizations across the state. And then last month, we have funded an additional three and a half million dollars to help with uh, social services to impact health related to COVID. So very, again, invested in ensuring that, you know, we're a part of improving health in the city of Chicago and across the state. 
Uh, we also have a long history of working on the topic of food insecurity. We've worked with Feeding America for quite some time. This year, we've actually provided a total of $150,000 to the Central Illinois Food Bank, the Eastern Illinois Food Bank, the Greater Chicago Food Depository, and the Northern Illinois Food Bank as well, again, helping ensure that individuals in distressed communities and individuals who are feeling distressed from the pandemic are able to have access to food. And we've also been engaged in helping our healthcare providers during the pandemic where there were significant PPE shortages, recognizing that that had a direct impact on the access and quality of care in communities where we have healthcare resources that were fragile and did not have in-depth PPE supplies to help support their employees as they were delivering healthcare on the front line. So these are just some of the ways that we've been invested in the community, invested in addressing the social determinants of health. And it's something that's part of our DNA, is part of who we are as a major pillar of the community and is part of work that will continue because it's mission-driven work for our company. Dr. Robinson, I'd like to build on what you said about how COVID-19 has really brought about a more universal recognition of inequities that have been damaging the healthcare system for Black and Hispanic communities. In the city of Chicago, recent data shows that Latinos have the highest COVID-19 infection rates at 18%, while Black Chicagoans have the highest rate of death. In fact, there are multiple studies across the country that show similar findings that Black, Hispanic, and Asian patients has significantly higher rates of COVID-19 infection and hospitalization and death compared to white counterparts. Moreover, the pandemic has also had a greater financial and emotional impact on Blacks and other minorities, according to a research effort from the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Undefeated. So these health disparities that are associated with the pandemic are the main reason why Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois launched the Health Equity Hospital Quality Incentive Pilot Program with multiple Illinois area providers and hospitals. And I was reading an article in Health Evolution about how the program will offer approximately $100 million in funding to participating hospitals to help serve BCBSIL members in Illinois communities who are often most at risk of contracting COVID-19. I'm hoping you can tell us more about the program and what some of the goals that BCBSIL has for this $100 million investment. I'd be happy to do that. Let me start by setting setting the stage here. So certainly COVID-19 was an accelerant of this activity. And when we reflect on our conversation today, where we've talked about the spotlight that COVID-19 placed on endemic disparities in our communities, that reminds us that you know, these challenges predated COVID. And likewise, our work in ensuring that equity becomes a core part of quality improvement that is a part of the contractual discussions and partnerships between our company as a payer and the providers that we partner with, both in the physician level and a hospital level, predated COVID. You know, going back as early as 2017, we began to integrate requirements around health equity, you know, collecting patient level data on race, ethnicity, and language, and beginning to stratify quality measures by those demographics to identify disparities in care was work that we began in partnership on a sort of a stair-step approach with those providers. Just for a little context, we have 24 primary and specialty ACOs across the state that we attribute about 48% of our group commercial lives to. And also, we have about 44 IPAs and PHOs uh, across multiple HMO products in Illinois, where we have about 600,000 commercial lives. So with those provider partners, for several years, we've been moving down this health equity journey with them. The new program that we launched with the $100 million investment focused on our institutional providers, our academic medical centers, and teaching hospitals that were in large part serving communities disproportionately affected by COVID-19, which also means that these are communities disproportionately affected by many of the endemic chronic medical conditions that have contributed to the longstanding disparities that we've spoken about during this discussion. And not only was our intent to provide uh, some financial support and, and stability, but there also was an intent to transform our quality programs that we've had with these institutions to pitch the health equity value-based care tent bigger and really to bring uh, within that fold our larger institutional providers to ensure that they too are beginning to evolve how they manage quality in the clinical setting, how they drive towards the reduction of disparities and inequities in care that's delivered, and how they also ensure that we are modernizing our workforce to reflect the communities that we serve. 
So this program has two primary arms to it. One is a clinical arm and one is a physician workforce arm. And in the clinical arm, we first require that our participating hospitals are collecting data on race, ethnicity, and language beginning in the first year of this three-year program. And beginning in the second year, the collection of data on sexual orientation and gender identity, again, with the premise that it's going to be difficult to improve those opportunities for improvement that you're not measuring. So we've got to do the measurement first. And then there's the expectation that these providers are stratifying their quality data by these demographics. And we have dollars at risk in the third year of the program for achieving reductions in disparities in care on a number of the CMS inpatient and outpatient measures. In addition, we appreciate just the significant challenges that we've seen both within the state of Illinois and across the country in the area of maternal morbidity and mortality and the racial and ethnic disparities there. So we've also included in the clinical arm of this program a focus on implementing some of the best practice bundles in terms of providing safe maternal care and management of hypertension and hemorrhaging or bleeding for pregnant moms. Um, and we'll be evaluating some of those severe maternal morbidity measures for those respective areas, stratified by those demographics, again, with the idea of reducing and maybe ultimately eliminating disparities in care so that we can really get at addressing the disparities that we see in maternal morbidity. We also appreciate that there's been a significant expansion in the use of telehealth services, uh, which I think was long overdue for our healthcare system. We also want to ensure in that process that there's not a widening digital divide. And so we're asking our participating hospitals to also look at the demographics of individuals that are using telehealth services and to ensure that we're not seeing that racial ethnic divide in access to care occur through those specific means as well. So those are some of the highlights of our requirements under the program on the clinical arm. Looking at the physician workforce arm, there we have some longstanding underrepresentation of African Americans, Hispanics, or Latinos, and the American Indian population in the physician workforce, both at the state level in Illinois, as well as nationally. I and mean, even as you dive in deeper into the Hispanic ethnicity, you again see that there's significant underrepresentation, for example, in the Mexican American category and the Puerto Rican category and others. And so one of the things that we're challenging our institutions to do is to look at their hospital service area, look at the the racial and ethnic demographics of the community that you serve and ask the fundamental question, are your medical school classes representative of that community? Are your residency uh, programs and your fellowship programs representative of that community? Are your clinical faculty representative of that community? And not just in aggregate, but look at it by specialty level on the clinical faculty component and the graduate medical education component as well. Back in, I think, March March or April of 2019, we had a chance to convene most of the teaching hospitals and large health systems across the state for a focused discussion on physician diversity. And we have partners come in from the AAMC and the ACGME. And it was very eye-opening to marry the data in terms of the demographics on race and ethnicity across residency training programs and kind of the lived experience of trainees. It's one thing to walk through major medical centers, see doctors on rounds, notice that many of the physicians in the white coats that are rotating through the halls and caring for patients often don't reflect the demographics of the patients that are being served, particularly when your medical center is located in an African-American or Hispanic community. It's another thing to look at the data that depicts how many residents that are African-American or Hispanic or American Indian are in specialties across the entire state's GME programs, whether it's orthopedics, urology, radiology, and so forth. And it was, it was startling. And that really helped inform our approach going into this program. And, and honestly, those who were in a room that day, nearly 200 individuals thought that while health insurance companies typically have not been engaged in this aspect of work, that they thought we could play a unique role in it. And so when we look at this component within the pilot program, we we set in place some goals for our institutions to be more representative of 
the communities that they serve. And if they find that, they, that they're not representative, some goals for them to demonstrate levels of effort year over year and ultimately towards achieving some outcomes in the direction of, of parity. And so we think that's very important. We think it can be an accelerant of change. Uh, we also have some expectations around the implementation of implicit bias training throughout sort of the value chain of the admissions process for medical schools as well as for residents starting at a leadership level, so department shares, as well as uh, residency selection committees and medical school admissions committees and individuals that are engaged in the interview process, being trained annually on implicit bias as a requirement within our program. And then also it's been recognized that there are some gaps in leadership support for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the graduate medical education sphere. And so we have a requirement for the appointment of a vice dean or a vice president that has executive reporting relationships within the organization that'll be responsible and, and accountable for that particular scope of work. And then we also have you know, requirements that the holistic admissions uh, review process be implemented in graduate medical education programs and that our uh, institutions are maintaining their diversity and equity and inclusion staffing and increasing that staffing over the course of the program commensurate with some of the additional resources you know, that we've provided. And then I think one really important component of this program is looking at the development of an annual report that brings together both the successes and challenges in both the clinical quality component as well as the workforce component around equity and ensuring that the governing bodies uh, that manage our respective provider organizations have visibility to that information so that they can be agents of support and wind in the sails of these efforts towards uh, health equity. And the last thing I will add on that is, as I talked about the, the underrepresentation by racial and ethnic demographics across specialties, I think it's also important to note that within the teaching ranks of our medical training program, we also see disparities in the number of African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, and American Indians that are in the upper ranks of the promotion and tenure process. You know, so whether they're assistant professor, associate professor, or professor, as you move up that rank, you see even worsening underrepresentation within those higher ranking roles within academia uh, and medicine. And so one of the things we've also required is that our institutions are including credit for work in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, towards the promotion and tenure process, because we know that often the responsibility for addressing efforts to reduce disparities and pursue health equity fall disproportionately on the shoulders of the few minority clinical faculty that are within institutions. And often that work is not credited to support those individuals as they move forward in their academic pursuits. So they often have to choose between uh, trying to meet a real moral imperative within the communities that they are serving and with which they have experience with and pursuing other academic interests for which they would get credit towards advancing within the academic ranks. And so we want to eliminate that as being a disadvantage for those individuals. So we've we've taken a pretty granular and intentional effort at both addressing opportunities to improve health equity and clinical care in the near term, but then also ensuring that the seeds are planted for some durable efforts that will sustain over time and that also align with a large body of literature that shows that having more racial and ethically diverse physicians will likely lead to increased access because those physicians are more likely to serve the underserved, more likely to serve individuals who have Medicaid or might not have English as their primary language. And certainly building that trust at the physician-patient level, meeting patients where they are based on their lived experiences, we think can certainly help address opportunities to improve health, opportunities to improve patient compliance and our understanding of things even outside of healthcare that influence their health status uh, and really helping empower them to reach their fullest potential. So we're excited about this program. We look forward to seeing what its impact is on the health status of patients across Illinois, uh, as well as our healthcare delivery system over time. And this is just, just the beginning of that work. Dr. Robinson, I'm inspired by this work to really improve health equity and clinical care and the diversity inclusion of the workforce. And it's certainly an outstanding opportunity. And we'd love to have you on and maybe at some point in the future to talk about these great results and how that investment's being leveraged in the right way to really move the needle here. And I wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about the vulnerability in your member communities and some of the long standing entrenched institutional racism that African-American 
Americans and other groups are facing. And I wanted to ask you more about COVID-19 and building trust in communities and ensuring equitable distribution of vaccines. And I know that's an issue that you've been working on just for our listeners out there. And I think we mentioned some of this data earlier, but the the virus has really exacerbated health disparities even further within the African-American community. They're three times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID-19 compared to their white counterparts and twice as likely to die from the virus. And as we address this pandemic, it's of paramount importance that we ensure equitable distribution of vaccines. However, a nationwide Kaiser Family Foundation survey in December of 2020 reported that only 35% of African Americans stated that they definitely or probably would not get the vaccine. And this was a significantly higher percentage of reluctance compared to all other ethnic counterparts surveyed. And the revelation of this study in a similar vein to the rest of 2020 with regard to civil unrest, and it really reflects a much deeper problem within our society. Quite frankly, it it seems that many African Americans have an inherent distrust of the American medical system, and that's certainly understandable given our country's established history of abusing African Americans, such as the 40-year Tuskegee experiment that created generational trauma and general distrust of the health system. And I read recently that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois has taken a lead role in ensuring expansion of access to COVID-19 vaccinations, testing, and education by providing grants to community-based organizations. Can you tell our listeners more about this initiative? And as a leader that's focused on health equity, can you also provide your perspective on how we can engender trust between the medical profession and communities of color? It's been a very challenging 15 months or so uh, since COVID-19 has arrived on on our shores here in the U.S. And there certainly has been great interest in uh, the development of a vaccine. And we are almost six six to seven months, six months following the initial launch of uh, vaccination efforts uh, in the U.S., which is extraordinary. I think it's really difficult to you know, have an honest conversation about trust and improving vaccination across communities without just acknowledging that 2020 was filled with a lot of political influence and information that was distributed to the community. And so there's a lot of mistrust that I think lingers from that. And we see that by rural and urban communities. We can look at it by political ideology. And certainly, yes, we also see it by race and ethnicity. And I think while while there are some alarming statistics around low vaccination rates and some of our black and brown communities, it's in my experience that there's a large segment of folks that are on the fence and leaning in the direction of getting vaccinated. They need just a little bit of a nudge. They need a few doubts erased. They need you know, some trusted messengers to help get them off the fence to move forward. Certainly, there are some, uh, some hard no's, and I think we see that across demographics. Uh, But I think we see a lot more individuals that are likely to get vaccinated than unlikely to get vaccinated. And that's good news. The imperative is that we've got to move quickly because we certainly have the concerns around variants. And we also have the concerns around, you know, the need to really reopen our economies and get individuals back to work and get children back to school and be able to do those things in a safe and sustainable way. So we're working overtime, not only at Blue Cross, but I think across many organizations that help try to meet individuals where they are to help them get vaccinated. And so that leads into some of the work that we are doing to support the community. We've certainly provided a number of rapid response grants. Again, early in the pandemic, we provided uh, $1.5 million in funding to organizations that were addressing some of the other social need gaps that emerged as a result of the pandemic. And now that we've got vaccine supply that is available, uh, we've invested an additional $3.5 million to help support social organizations in working with communities at the local level to help it expand uh, access to vaccines. You know, we've worked with public health departments routinely over the years and at an even heightened level during the pandemic and during this last six months of efforts to vaccinate individuals to ensure that those resources are adequately distributed. We're also working in close partnership with the state to help ensure that uh, many of our elderly and seniors population is getting vaccinated. But we know right now the biggest challenge that we face are in individuals ages 18 to 64. These individuals are driving the hospitalization rates that we see currently as more and more of our seniors have gotten vaccinated. We've seen the numbers of hospitalized over 65 
drop off dramatically, and those are being replaced with folks in the 18 to 64 category. So we're working diligently to try to address the concerns of individuals and, and move them forward. And, and while there are a number of those historic examples of racism in healthcare that you've noted, I think Many of the things that drive the hesitancy that folks have currently is really just based on their current lived experiences. And so, again, we have to meet people where they are, understand what those concerns are, and then help empower them and give them options to make that decision. And in some instances, that means actually bringing the vaccination resource to them. So in communities where you have folks who don't have access to personal transportation, they don't have smartphones, and then access to technology to do scheduling. How do we make it easy for them? So it's one thing to convince them. It's another thing to actually make it easy for them to get the vaccine. And so those are the efforts that we're supporting uh, currently. And the last thing I will add there is we've also uh, supported our clinical staff within the company, our, our nurses and physicians and others, being able to take time off from work to help volunteer uh, with some of our providers to assist in vaccination. And we have compensate our employees while they're actually doing that service in the community. So we're really proud to support uh, this effort to not only improve trust and improve uh, the likeliness that individuals will get vaccinated, but also to help support some of the infrastructure that's being led by our leaders and our provider partners uh, to get uh, individuals across our communities vaccinated. Dr. Robinson, I'd like to focus on some of the specific conditions that are being addressed by BCBSIL as part of its broader health equity strategy. As I understand, your organization's been focused intently on specific health issues and medical conditions. And you've mentioned the maternal and child health. There's also pediatric asthma, adult diabetes, and breast cancer. In December 2019, BCBSIL partnered with the American Hospital Association's Institute for Diversity and Health Equity to support a one-year grant program that supports hospitals in eliminating these specific health care disparities. And then, of course, you have, have the recently announced Health Equity Hospital Quality Incentive Pilot Program that's looking to ensure everyone has fair opportunity to get as healthy as they can by addressing disparities of care that exist in our communities. Can you share any outcomes data that you may have related to some of the specific conditions, such as maternal and child health, the pediatric asthma, adult diabetes, and breast cancer, that have been targeted for improvement within your health equity strategy? Let me start by just doing a little bit of, of framing. We talked earlier around the foundational work done with our ACO programs and our HMO programs. Uh, and we're now in the year of reporting. So some of the outcomes data that we're looking to see that does that stratification by race and ethnicity is forthcoming. So we don't have that data currently to share, but you are right. There are some themes in terms of the areas of focus. And so within the ACO and the HMO programs, uh, we did focus in on the areas of asthma and diabetes and hypertension, recognizing their significant prevalence, as well as really the intersectionality of several of these conditions with other chronic medical conditions. And if we can make a difference in reducing disparities there, then it can have a significant downstream effect on the health of patients, life expectancy, and other, other factors. When we launched our partnership with the American Hospital Association, which I was really excited to do, and their Institute for Diversity and Health Equity, there were two focuses there. So one was to get more of the AHA hospitals to sign on to AHA's health equity pledge and to perhaps move to a different level of commitment within that health equity pledge program, but then also to have those entities focus similarly in the area of diabetes, asthma, hypertension, breast cancer, and maternal health care for opportunities to address disparities. And again, what we've tried to do is have some alignment between our historical and contemporary community investment strategy with various organizations supporting improved health outcomes aligned with certain medical conditions, with also what we're doing from a contracting perspective around health disparities, bringing those together so that there's alignment and, and synergy. And we're looking forward to seeing outcomes generate in the near future, reflecting some of the synergy of those strategically aligned efforts. Well, Dr. Robinson, you mentioned earlier the importance of having a diverse physician workforce that represents variations in gender, age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, social status to improve outcomes for everyone. And I wanted to make reference to a groundbreaking report titled Missing Persons, Minorities, and the Health Professions that was released in 2004. It went as far as to say that the fact that the nation's health professions have not kept pace with changing demographics maybe an even greater cause of 
disparities in health access and outcomes, then the persistent lack of health insurance for tens of millions of Americans. And I know this is an issue that you're very passionate about, and you mentioned it earlier. You know, you've worked in this area for nearly two decades, leading community efforts to promote diversity, inclusion, undergraduate and postgraduate education at the local, state, and national levels. Additionally, you're a member of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Committee for the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. And then, of course, recently, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, under your leadership, launched an institute for physician diversity. And through this effort, BCBSIL is going to partner with academic medical centers, teaching hospitals, and nonprofit organizations really aiming to diversify the physician workforce. So my question here, Dr. Robinson, is just, can you help our listeners better understand this issue of diversity in the physician workforce? Why is it so important in the provision of culturally competent care? Let me start by just, again, acknowledging that what's needed here is uh, systemic change. A lot of times institutions, whether it's within healthcare or other sectors of our economy, may recognize that there's a need for change, that, that it's the right thing to do. But sometimes that moral imperative to make that change is not sufficient to accelerate the change occurring. Uh, I was given a talk recently and, and asked a question to the audience regarding which law or major court decision led to the racial desegregation of hospitals in the United States. And what led to racial desegregation in the hospital, hospitals in the United States was really the enforcement of a payment requirement within Medicare that under uh, President Johnson, they would not compensate hospitals for the new Medicare program if they continue to deliver care in a racially segregated environment. We know that the implementation of Medicare came behind previous decisions that struck down separate but equal, for example, came behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I think that when we, when we look at the business case for changes where payment and revenue are influenced by the decisions of organizations, I think that gets the attention of leaders who can help drive some of that systemic change that needs to occur. I think it's reflective of the wisdom of some of the work that we've done in our pilot program to help address this, this challenge. The imperative, I think, is driven by the data. There are a number of reports. There was an evaluation of patients in California, for example. They did a study of African-American men participating in a randomized control trial, and they determined that those African-American men were more likely to share health concerns and were more likely to seek out additional uh, preventative care when they were receiving care from an African-American physician. And what that reflected was that there is some distrust amongst uh, racial and ethnic minorities. So this is where the patient is based on their lived experience, which may impact their decisions and their level of trust of, of the healthcare system. So we do need to deliver a workforce that's more reflective of the community. So in some instances, we can meet patients where they are. And I always like to remind folks that this effort does not imply that physicians who do not have racial concordance with their patients can't provide good, high-quality care. I always like to use myself as an example that I've encountered patients in the emergency department that wanted a, a woman physician. Um, and that didn't mean that as a, as a man or a male physician that I couldn't provide high quality care, but there was something in that patient's experience that made them feel more comfortable. They might share additional information. And where possible over time, I've worked to accommodate those requests. And I imagine if there was no woman physician available in the entire group, you know, that that's a challenge. I mean, that in an emergency setting can lead to some decisions on the part of uh, the patient, maybe not to seek care that could be could be detrimental. And so I think we, we think about the same thing when we look at this from a, a race and ethnicity perspective. Language concordance is, is important. Um, I'm sure a number of your audience members who are physicians have been in a situation where they did not speak the language of the patient that they were providing care to and can appreciate that as the language barrier can certainly reduce the quality of care. I think there's been studies out that have uh, demonstrated that as well. So again, we have to ensure that we are meeting our patients where they are prepared to provide them with high quality culturally competent, linguistically concordant care to best position us to deliver good health outcomes. And in the training environment, it's really great to have 
individuals of different cultural and ethnic and racial backgrounds to help us better understand the experiences of our patients as we're learning along the way. And it's important also to have faculty members who can help support that. And so that's the reason why we've started the Institute for Physician Diversity, where we are working collaboratively with the academic leaders of our graduate medical education programs and medical schools also partnering with other organizations like the ACGME and the AAMC to help deploy programming in the Illinois market in a way that we think will be unique and impactful over time that helps assist them and helps walk with them on this particular journey. Folks often use the descriptors, carrots and sticks. If you want to use that here, we're this is not just a stick. This is a this is a carrot. We want to be part of the process with you. We want to help you be successful. We think it's the right thing to do for communities across the state, as well as for our members. Dr. Robinson, I'd like to wrap up our conversation today by asking for your perspective on how we bridge the digital divide to help ensure health equity. Even though we're early in thinking about broadband internet access as a social determinant of health, especially given the expansion of telehealth in this last year, Really, if we're to win this race to value in a new era of connected care and virtual visits, we have to make one principle sacrosanct, that the digital revolution cannot simply make only the wealthy healthier. And during the COVID-19 lockdowns, we saw how telehealth became the primary mode for supporting patients at home. And for many, it provided huge benefits. But again, we saw what we've long known That while most Americans have a smartphone, many don't have access to a data plan that's able to support both connected care or virtual education. What are your thoughts about how we can bridge the digital divide in communities to address connectivity to the internet as a true social determinant of health that it's now become? It has certainly become a critical social determinant of health, right? And not just for access to clinical care services, but even as we think about children who were remote learning, it was a determinant of their access to being able to continue their education, also a spillover to health literacy. So expanding broadband access and connectivity is something that remains uh, important. It certainly has been a longstanding concern in rural communities. Uh, We certainly have a lot of rural communities across the state of Illinois. Uh, It's also a concern even in urban environments due to some of the financial constraints and barriers that families may face. So this is definitely uh, something that we've got to address. We know that many individuals in our minority as well as lower income communities don't have the ability to work remotely. So many of their jobs actually have to be in person, but certainly to the extent that there were opportunities for uh, even remote work, individuals not having access to broadband being delivered in their communities is a barrier to being able to seek that opportunity. And employment and financial health has a great impact on physical health you know, as a social determinant. So this is definitely something that will require both public and private partnership and certainly getting our you know, telecom companies involved and engaged as well as some of the funding that we're seeing come from the federal government as well as within state budgets to address uh, this divide as something that is significantly and imperative. Again, not a new revelation, but certainly something that was accentuated during the pandemic and certainly something that we need to make progress on. Dr. Derek Robinson, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. I'm truly inspired by the great work that Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois is doing to advance value-based care and health equity in communities. Great work, and we really look forward to seeing how things progress over the next few years under your leadership and really moving the needle on this important issue. 